0: everyone and welcome to straight from the shoulder the podcast where we strive to analyze geopolitical events through the apolitical lens of intelligence officers i'm julia stone senior director of the arkin group and for the past 15 years i've worked in both public and private sector intelligence i'm here with spy master jack devine former acting deputy director of operations at the cia and the founder and president of the arkin group On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the increased threat of hostage-taking around the world, looking at the ongoing saga of the Israeli hostages through the lens of historic hostage incidences that have informed our own national hostage policy. We'll also be talking about how and why democratic nations are more vulnerable targets of hostage-takers worldwide. So while hostage-taking is an ancient practice that's been historically used by groups ranging from the Romans to the Chinese, it was a wave of terrorist kidnappings across the world in the 1970s that really informed how Washington deals with hostage crises today. One of the most notable informative incidents was the first time a U.S. diplomat was kidnapped. That was in 1969 when Ambassador Charles Elbrick was abducted in Brazil. Actually, a key geographic hotspot of concern for the U.S. in terms of hostages at that time was Latin America. Jack, you were in Latin America in the 1970s. Is that right?
1: Well, I actually was jumping out of a plane in 1969 <laughs> in my CT training, qualifying for air jump. It wasn't my favorite uh, activity, but I do remember the incident. And after that, I was assigned to Latin American Division at their headquarters element. And subsequently, I was assigned to Santiago, Chile. So I Mm -hmm. spent five assignments in Latin America in the 70s and early 80s. And I remember what it was like living, uh, um, being on your toes to make sure that you were not snatched and became the victim of a kidnapping. So it was very much with us in that environment.
0: Wow. So during that time, did you actually ever meet or talk to anyone who was kidnapped?
1: Actually, there was a... Air Attaché in Santa Domingue, who was kidnapped in 1970 and had an opportunity to debrief him about his experience, which uh, I remember quite vividly. Uh, there are two things about it, the horror and terror that unfolds. He described how he was thrown on the floor of the automobile. Is this Donald, the,
0: it, Donald Crowley?
1: I'm sorry, uh, Donald Ka- Crowley. He was the fence, Attaché. Uh, okay. Thank you so he was on the floor and they held a gun to his head. And every once in a while, they click it. I mean, the the tension and fear wow. that is in everyone's heart. But what I found f- fascinating, and which I was grateful that he shared with me, because I then shared it with many people when I briefed him about kidnapping, is that he said for two weeks before he was kidnapped, every time he walked out the door, he just felt something was wrong. He didn't know what oh it was, gosh. but he just had a physical sensation. Later on, he knew he knew exactly what had happened. So, uh, the point is, if someone is abroad, and anybody, mm-hmm. whether it's a diplomat or and you feel a sense of unease, don't try and analyze it. Just move wherever you are and get into a safe place. Trust your inner ear. So that was the lesson from Crowley. Yikes. The unfortunate thing about uh, Colonel Crowley is. He died relatively young, and, and I'm inclined to think that that experience took several years off his life. It was really frightening.
0: Wow. Well, I know that that had Elbrick had um, several years of his life taken off by his experience when he was captured as well. But with Elbrick's capture and with Crowley and some of the subsequent events in Latin America, the U.S. took a position that it was the responsibility of the host government to protect the diplomats that were accredited to it. And this was our initial policy, and it seemed to make some sense, right? Let the locals deal with their own criminals. But this view really shifted over time, especially when locals were unable or unwilling to deal with the hostage takers accordingly, and when the occurrences just became too frequent and widespread in places like Turkey, for example. Anyhow, it's generally thought that when U.S. diplomats were abducted and killed by the terrorist group Black September in Sudan in 1973, that Washington shifted course and the government stated that its new official policy was to make no concessions. But by the early 80s, though, you could already see how hard it was to, to upload this policy in practice. And Jack, you and I have spoken about this. Uh, for example, what what happened to the Iran Contra affair, which had an aspect of trading weapons for hostages, some sort of concession, right, later on in the deal? The official line was that weapons could be used to release them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and the significance of those kidnappings, Hezbollah kidnapped me, a bunch of important people thought, there?
1: Let me okay, with your adult, with your indulgent, let me hold the thought sure. for a second because the Latin American experience ex- extended over a long period of time, had deep impact on the, uh, the, uh, the Nixon administration. The public affairs officer in uh, Uruguay, for example, was kidnapped. There was no concessions and he was murdered. So there was a growing sense of how to deal with it, as you rightfully point mm. out. Make the local government make concessions. But it was after the Black September event that Anita came out and impacted on us in Latin America. And that was no uh, no concessions in, in any ransom situation. Believe it or not, as painful as, as that is, if you're in the field, there's relief, because that takes the incentive away from being kidnapped. So I think it was an important policy decision, no concessions. But as you mm-hmm. and I are going to talk, and you just raised the Iran-Contra issue, it evolves into, on one end, we're saying no concessions, but on the other hand, we actually proceeded to do it, so that there's an ambiguity in the policy today. Okay. But the the Iran Contra was indeed a, uh, a a turning point in the, a blatant, if that's the right word, blatant hostages for missiles.
0: So, is this related at all to the kidnapping of the CIA Beirut station chief, uh, James Buckley? What's the relationship there with the Iran Contra affair in our policy?
1: Well, I think this is a seminal moment in kidnapping. Uh, Buckley was highly respected. He was a uh, the reason I mentioned he was a, a bachelor or a, I think a, a military experience. It was a very dangerous assignment, so he didn't. Mm. He wasn't selected and told to go. That's the way it isn't uh, handled in CI. You're you're not asked if you want to go. You're told, and you should be ready to, to go. No one ever says no. In this particular case, the director at the time, Bill Casey, went to him and said, uh, "James, um, Jim, I'm not asking you to go. Um, it'd be great, but this is your call." And he stood wow. up and, and took the challenge. So, what happened? To, Buckley, is uh, he was leaving his apartment building. He had highly sensitive documents uh, locked to his wrist when he was this walking out. Beirut? of in Beirut? In Beirut. He was okay. uh, walking out of, into the garage, and there was a businessman with a suit who walked by him, turned around and hit him on the head with the, the, the briefcase contained bricks, knocked him out. They threw him in the car and whisked him away, Hezbollah. And they held him prisoner for 14 months. Now here's oh the my God. the gruesome part, which uh, I think is worth for a while for people to understand motivations. So the Hezbollah actually photographed their torturing of him, brutal torturing, and sent the tapes to the CIA. And Director Casey and President Reagan sat down and watched those tapes. And they were so incensed, so deeply Impacted upon it, that it was at that moment, that we'll do whatever it takes. Let's get Buckley out of there. So, okay. yes, we have a policy, but we're human beings, and then we begin to respond to that. So, that is the beginning, because at that moment, uh, an unsavory Iranian approached the White House with a deal to trade hostages for missiles. And they were thinking they would get rid of, uh, they would be able to. Uh, in- Get uh, Buckley out of uh, out of captivity. What they didn't realize, uh, the, Un- the Iran Contra affair started in eighty five, but he had been he was killed by by June of eighty five. So even the desire to make the transfer of uh, missiles for hostages, as well meaning as deeply understandable, it is it set a new precedent for negotiations. And uh, there was a great deal of controversy in the United States about changing the policy. Everyone needs to understand that's the prerogative of the president. It's not huh. a law. So at that point, um, we, we made a compromise with no concessions. I think following uh, administrations, you and I have talked about this in the past, there have been a series of policy statements, but in essence, it's still no concessions. But there's been so many mm-hmm. made that you have to take that with a grain of salt today.
0: Well, I think one of the interesting things about the Hezbollah captures is that was taking place at the same time as the Lebanese Civil War. And I think that our terrorists in general are more prolific and weak or failed states. I mean, we're we're there in charge, not the government, right? I mean, no concessions matters, but so do the penalties that a terrorist would face from their own government. And in a situation like that, these guys, you know, there was no government control over Hezbollah to the degree that they would stop that action, or it didn 't appear that they were in charge of anything, so I think that that 's a a terrifying part and part of the terror aspect of of hostage taking is that the terrorists are in control not just of of our hostages but of their own governments um, there's a
1: footnote uh, Juli on yeah. this in that uh, they did get the release of a uh, Of a few hostages but shortly thereafter they kidnapped another another three or four so you know the reason you have no concessions is as a preventive uh, so that it becomes unprofitable for someone to take if they know you're not going to deal then why kidnap them so so what what happened in Latin America
0: like how did the Latin American kidnapping slow down
1: well, what happened in that particular case in the business community? In the business community, uh, U.S. businesses, Fortune 500 magazine uh, magazines—that's good, Fortune 500 companies—withdrew <laughs> uh, their American executives and left uh, local executives. And they knew that the while Americans might pay ransom, and now they've declared they won't. A, a Latin businessman is not going to be ransomed by the U.S. government. So after a while, they just stopped uh, uh, kidnapping U.S. executives. What well, they went after and continue to this day, rich people, and they just, it's a, a commercial. It's not a political, it's not a terrorism-driven uh, mm-hmm. pol- uh, political movement. It's uh, kidnapping people for money. In Colombia, Mexico, this is day-to-day business. So it didn't stop American diplomats from being kidnapped at that point.
0: So there's a a sort of a difference that you're highlighting here between a terrorist group and sort of these other types and forms of kidnappings. And with terrorists and such a powerful terrorist act, because it, it continues the act, right? October 7th, it's continued in the the life and the fabric of Israeli civil you know society and the US. I mean we still have Americans, several Americans who are held in Gaza. Um so it's a very powerful and effective tool. Do you think that there's ever a role of of force um in trying to, to get those hostages out? I mean, so far in Gaza well, we've only seen really effective hostage negotiations were what what got most of those hostages released in November. And so far, at least, I mean, tragically, with the, the Israeli Defense Force effort in Gaza, seems that several hostages have actually been killed in the process. Um, when is there a use of a force and, and military uh, role in hostage rescues?
1: Just a, a brief comment on terrorism. The purpose of it is not only to to ransom, but to inflict terror. I mean, the brutality of it is designed to produce terror, to make people yield and give up concessions of all types but coming back to the use of force um, as you look at the evolution of policy every new policy statement after the iran contra was w- wedded in how could we how could we rescue them right
0: mm-hmm. and this is
1: an honorable objective and even the latest dod Absolutely. policy guidance of a week or two ago is talking about increasing intelligence and this is Highly commendable our special forces the Israeli special know how to do rescue, and they're very very effective train train, train latest equipment, having said that, you know in in routine, there's no such thing as a routine but let let's say it's not Hamas or not Hezbollah, but a fly by night group that you can easily sneak up on the middle of the night or even someone like bin laden if you look at that operation no american was killed they went in and wiped out a whole group right and including bin laden so and the israelis did that in uganda so it can be done the problem is when you look at today you can do all the training you want but if you disperse 150 people and if you mm -hmm. put them in bunkers deep below the ground where you can't see you you're your electronic surveillance. Nothing works. So it isn't that we shouldn't use force. I am all for it. If you can go in with a high confidence of rescuing people, you don't go in on, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. You have to have a high confidence. And my experience with uh, warfighters is that they handle that very seriously. They don't do of foolish missions. They really won't do it unless they believe it's, so it's a- actually. You're
0: suggesting so, that the delineation between hostage and, and perpetrator has to be a little bit clearer for those things to be effective. I mean, in Bin Laden's case, right, we didn't really care if everybody in there died um, versus in a tunnel or a house that Hamas yeah. or Palestinian had. Well, there's a lot of emphasis,
1: even in this new policy document, which, you know, it's I hate to be so critical at this moment, but you know, it's a lot of bureaucratic, you know, we're going to put a general in charge and he's going to coordinate to reduce civilian mm-hmm. casualties. The truth of the matter is our armed forces, when they're going into combat, every situation, they're looking to reduce uh, casualties. It's been an SOP for so long. The yeah. Israelis, as I say, the same. You know, you're, you don't go in and it may it looks horrible. Right. But this is minimalist from their point of view. Um, so. uh I think what you have to, what people have to realize, is that people are going to get get killed in the process, and you have to make a judgment to minimize the civilian losses. And you you you'll have seen many documented video type of situations where the U.S. was able to blow up a vehicle, but they withheld; they didn't fire because of concern about um, about loss. It's interesting, and people probably don't realize this at one point the President of the United States had to use had to be authorized a drone strike against uh, um a terrorist okay so it, it but it what do you, it's, what do you mean well, in other words for example the the one that was an American citizen you, you know it wasn't going to be made by any field commander it was at the executive uh-huh. level white house the, the decision was made so in warfighting, you can't wait that long sometimes, and you can't have a lot of coordination. So the field, you have to mm-hmm. be very careful with policies that you don't over-restrict things that you can't get missions accomplished. So my concern about the latest guidance looks like more restrictions restraints, coordination with no gain. But we should have, uh, I hope we do invest heavily in trying to improve our ability and, and I think we have been trying and continue to try and improve our abilities, but the it isn't the equipment, it isn't even the training now, it's the circumstances. And the circumstances don't let you do it. And I think they're being responsible. You know, you could blow it and blow through and maybe rescue five and kill, you know, 500 people and half the, host- That's, or that is not the a hostages. Or kill the hostages. I think
0: the fear is That's to might kill the hostages in the process, right? I mean, hostages, right. when you hear their accounts later, they're always most afraid, both praying for and most terrified of rescue attempts. Well, um, I
1: think the point that you're making, which I endure, there has to be a high bar, but there is a high bar. People have to understand that, that yeah. armed forces really, there's a high, high bar. There, the Israelis are not going, you haven't seen where they have really been aggressive is taking out one of the Hamas leaders in a neighboring country where they've had the resources to track them for a long time. So, you know, I've been harping for a long time on the need to invest more in human sources and less on technology because uh, technology will not see through walls generally. Right, So we need right. more human sources on the ground and in networks that can tell you that the the uh, the drugstore in the corner is not a drugstore two floors down, that's where the hostages are. And this is hard, hard work and not often appreciated. And we give a lot of lip service. But I don't want to go on well, that old salt we did that last time, which is I'm a big believer in more yeah. need for human sources. If you're going to rescue hostages, it's even more to do it successfully. It's great to have a source on the ground.
0: I I think that makes sense. And I think that part of getting sources and dealing with how to maneuver in countries like this, there's also an aspect of democratic practice and kind of what's permissible. And it seems that taking hostages is a greater threat um, the more that the world is divided across democratic and non-democratic lines. Um, democratic societies in general seem more susceptible to all those pressures you were just talking about, Jack, you know, in terms of, of acting. With great care, but they're also more susceptible to hostage taking because the perpetrators recognize that democratic societies will fight for each one of their citizens. Journalists are going to be allowed to co- openly cover the crises. The government subject to pressure from from its citizens in a place like you know Russia or something. It might not be. Um, and the voters, people are going to vote in response to the way that the government has handled the situations. So should we be worried in the in the coming years, um, Americans and citizens of democratic nations are going to be more and more restricted in where they can travel, um, where we're seeing these these lines become well, firmer?
1: Well, you have a couple of points. One is restricted travel, right? But the first one is really, are we restricted? Are we at a disadvantage? That was the first part mm, of your question, true. which is. And the truth of the matter is, democracies are always at a disadvantage in dealing with authoritarian governments. They can make, they can make instantaneous decisions, do not have to care about a constituency, and they, they can act, uh, without, uh, accountability generally. But we don't want to trade our system off because our system, our strength is the fact that we have the support of the people and that we are working on within, Within parameters, rule of law, uh, uh, thoughtful policies are a strength. But if you just go to a specific example, yes, uh, right now we have a very uncomfortable situation, the unwanted kidnappings. In other words, in the spy business, if if we catch a spy red-handed like Colonel Abel back in the 50s who was involved in the nuclear secrets, or they capture one of our spies, right? You trade them, but they're spies, so that's a negotiable thing that we have done over the years. But if you're just a journalist going around, you decide you're an autocratic government. Let's let's put some drugs in his bag, or even just sit and arrest him and say he was meeting with somebody. There's no room for negotiations mm-hmm. in the in, in the sense of spies. This means you're being you're basically being um, blackmailed into providing uh, concessions. I think we have to address this really right now because Russia, China seem to be in the habit of picking up people. What's our recourse in a democracy? That's your, your question. And uh, no one has asked me, but I would make sure I had a repertoire of a lot of secondary assets of theirs that I would be able to wrap up and trade. Um <laughs> Or the other okay. option, which is so hard for people to deal with, you go back to the diplomats and businessmen of the seventies in Latin Americans, and we're just not going to trade. If you come up with mm. a phony case, we're not trading, then they'll stop doing it. But it's a hard, hard thing for a democracy to swallow. And if you're in a position of being the kidnapped person, it's a hard, and we their families, it's a really difficult dilemma. So I think Absolutely. you're post- postulating something that we have to deal with. The fact that I'm really concerned do we have clarity in our policy? What exactly is our policy? We say it's no concessions and then we proceed to make concessions. That is bad business because the terrorists on the other side or the nation state, they don't take you seriously. So there's no deterrent. So I think this is time. I think that Gaza is, we need to come up with a policy. What is it going to be? I wouldn't suggest we either draw it up or execute it during this crisis. But when it's over, I think we need to be get back to the mm-hmm. drawing board, not about how to modify the attack. What is our policy? And get the American people behind that so that you have bipartisan support. This is what we're going to do if they're going to do unwanted uh, kidnappings. And again, I think it has to be left to, to the people to decide. I mean, I've got my views, but I, I really think, you know, democracy, it's a strength.
0: Well, thank you, Jack. That was a fascinating conversation. I do worry about um Americans being having less interaction with other parts of the world given all of these these new risks and seems to be an increasing risk and at a time when we need to be really collaborating on threats that are transnational, you know, viruses, pandemics, um climate change, resource allocation, it seems that we are we are being more divided. So if clearer so policies can help, that would be that would be one step so, in the right direction. I'm not sure they're enough, frankly, but something.
1: So I was in the cab today driving <laughs> driving to, to a meeting, and uh, the cab driver was incensed by BBC saying they're now announcing that Taiwan uh, is going to invade China, right?
0: Uh, China invading Taiwan.
1: And his point was uh, we have to be strong. They have to realize they can't do that. But whether it's a cab driver or a dean of a university or a member of Congress, I think we have to understand the principle of strength. In other words, if you want a deterrent, and whether it's in terrorism, kidnapping, foreign adventurism, you have to have two things. You need to have clarity of message of what, what you stand for, what you will tolerate. And then you must show strength. And uh, I think we're at a period of time it won't surprise anybody that this is my position. I think to be, we have to be sure that we don't have wobbly knees in so much of the world today. Whether it's Ukraine, Israel, it will be badly misinterpreted, and it'll it'll lower our chances of being taken seriously as a deterrent.
0: Thank you, Jack. That was a, a fascinating discussion on a, a very complicated ethical and political um, topic. Next week, we're going to switch gears and dive a bit more into the spy world. We're going to talk about issues like covert action, disinformation, and that time-tested nemesis of betrayal. This episode of Straight from the Shoulder has been produced by Jen Scory